Think back, if you can, to the first time you picked up a Bible and flipped through its pages. For many, that experience was daunting, myself included. 66 books of historical narrative, poetry, prophecy, teaching, and so on. A first-time reader could look at this amazing work and wonder, is it just a collection of stories? How are they related? How do I connect them together? But as we've discovered as God's people, and as we've studied, and as we've learned that the Bible is not only a coherent book, but it is one book with one message about one thing, we've learned that it's about the redeeming work of God, the Father, through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, on every page and in every story and every poem and every prophecy and teaching, the authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit, reveal the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that's what Matthew's gospel does for us. Matthew's gospel highlights the main theme of Scripture as it highlights Jesus' saving work and saving grace in the lives of those he's redeemed writing to a primarily Jewish audience that has been waiting for the Messiah to come and for the Messiah to establish his kingdom, Matthew reveals this stunning news. And that's why it's called good news. He reveals this stunning news along with stunning proof as he talks about page after page the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He brings this stunning news to bear and proof to bear that by showing them all the Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled, and they've been fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. The king has come with his kingdom, and what a king he is, and what a kingdom he brings. That's what we are studying as we look at Matthew's gospel. We've been through the first four chapters, and this afternoon we are continuing, and we will begin with the Sermon on the Mount. So if you would turn to chapter 5 and look at verse 1. And actually look a little bit back to verse 17 of chapter 4. Matthew writes, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 23 of chapter 4, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And verse 25, And great crowds followed him from Galilee, and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. In verse 1 of chapter 5, seeing the crowds, these immense crowds, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he 
Matthew ends, and this isn't considered one of the Beatitudes, that the eight that we just read, but it's considered a, a repeat in a sense or a restatement of the 10th verse, uh, the eighth Beatitude. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, Father, we come to you this afternoon. We come to you joyfully as we have your inspired word before us to guide us, to be a lamp unto our feet, our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we, we come to you this afternoon expecting to hear from you, trusting we will hear from you through your word as your spirit works in our hearts. And that is our prayer, that your spirit would work in our hearts this afternoon, that we might be partakers of grace as we learn from your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in 417, we saw the inauguration of Jesus' kingdom as he explained what must happen before a person can become a citizen in the heaven, in, in, the, in the kingdom of God. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They must repent. That's the message of repentance, and, and it's not what the people expected. It's not what the Jews expected. And the miracles are not what they expected. All the, the healing of diseases and, and pains and, and those who are paralytics and those who are having seizures. And he's healing all who are oppressed with demons. That is not what these people expected. They expected a king who was going to come and conquer their natural enemy, which was those who were oppressing them in, in the nations around them. But he comes and he, he does these miracles. And there's, there, but there's so much more to the kingdom of God than, than miracles. And after a time, after a time of healing, after a time of his compassionate care for the crowds, he pulls away and he begins to teach his disciples. As we read in, in verse 1 and 2, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. He pulls away and, and he sees these crowds and so he gathers his disciples and it's time to teach them. And when, when Matthew speaks of the disciples here, he's, he's speaking about more than just the twelve. It, it, is, it, it isn't until Matthew 10 that we see the twelve actually named and set apart for ministry. And as a rabbi, Jesus would naturally have a following, those who would, would be following after him to learn from him. And they, they would be called his disciples. And so there would be a, a group larger than the twelve. But not all were necessarily true believers. But there were those who believed in him. In fact, in John 6, we read that many of his disciples left him after his teaching became too hard for them to abide by. But here in 5.1, the weeding out process has yet to happen. There, there are surely many who truly believe, and it is 
those who are to learn what life in Christ's kingdom is all about. And, and as we read about these, these men, these disciples, learning about what life in Christ's kingdom is about, because God's word is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it is, it is speaking to you and I. It was speaking to me as I was preparing, and it should be speaking to you. Brothers and sisters, this is what life in God's kingdom is about. And to enter that kingdom, you must repent. If you've not repented of your sins, if you have not come to God and put your trust in his saving work on the cross, then you need to repent if you are to be one who lives in the kingdom of God. And here, here Jesus is, is talking to those who, who have responded by the Jordan to John's baptism, but also responding to Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Listen, there is no doubt that with, when, when Jesus began this teaching, there's no doubt in my mind, and I, and I think m- many of the commentators, that, that there, were, there were still not just the disciples hanging on, but there, there were those on the fringe who were from the crowd that got healed or from the crowd that was following him, that they were eavesdropping in on this teaching. And so this afternoon, you, you get to more than eavesdrop in on this teaching. You, you have the inspired word of God in front of you, able to listen to God speak to you through the Holy Spirit. And so as we talk about what it means to be a disciple in the kingdom of God, trust that God at this moment is speaking to you, that he is, he is speaking to you you to you personally he is speaking your name he is aware of where your heart is at he is aware of the struggles that you face being a follower of christ he's aware of the the joys you experience he's aware of the challenges that you experience in the in a world that is broken he is he is here present in his word and present among his people and he is speaking to you today And this afternoon, we're only going to start with one beatitude. We're going to start with that first beatitude. But first, let's look at verse 2 of this chapter. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... As Jesus continues to fulfill 4.23, where he goes about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom... As he, as, he goes, as he continues to fulfill this, this mandate that he has, this calling that he has by his father, Matthew uses a common phrase in Scripture, and, and you'll, you can see this phrase in Scripture again and again, where, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And when, when this happens, this, this denotes an important and solemn and sober moment when, when a teacher, a rabbi, would sit and would open his mouth and begin to teach. And that is what happen, is happening here. And, and what that solemn moment is, is Jesus describing to his disciples the very first description of life in the kingdom of God of God. What what it is like to live in the kingdom of God. What you and I should look like as citizens in the kingdom of God. 
That is what Jesus is after. Now the Sermon on the Mount in, in chapters 5 through 7, which we will be going through, is, it's, it's an extended moment. This, this, many commentators believe it went on for days, where Jesus' teaching reveals the gospel in the most powerful and unique way. And, and don't get hung up on the, the ethical teaching here as what is primary to the, these, these three chapters, 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the ethical teaching is important, and we are to obey and follow this ethical teaching. But this Sermon on the Mount is about the one who is speaking the Sermon on the Mount. It is the one who has transformed us, who has transformed these disciples, that they can live the Sermon on the Mount. And it is a powerful moment, and it is a unique moment. And it's clearly evident that the requirements to be a disciple of Jesus, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, are impossible to keep. Try, try it on your own. You might, you might get by a couple of days, a couple of hours, or just drive on 355 on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> and you won't get by at all. To, to live in God's kingdom, a disciple must do all of Jesus' commands. But how can a sinner possibly do this? Well, he can. He can because God has made a way. In his mercy and through the Holy Spirit, he, he makes us aware of our sin so that we might see ourselves for who we really are and who Christ is. And that's why this is such a wonderful gospel moment. Now, even as Jesus defines his kingdom and he describes the demands of his kingdom, he wisely begins with the Beatitudes, and in particular, this first Beatitude, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the word Beatitude comes from a Greek word that means blessing, which many will define blessing as meaning happy. But but blessed in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5 go much deeper than the word happy. This, this, this happiness is one that is only found in God's saving grace. To be counted as a citizen in God's kingdom is to literally be divinely happy. Much deeper than I'm just happy birthday, I'm happy about the Christmas presents I've gotten. It's a much deeper and much more solemn happiness. It is a happiness rooted in, in divinity. It is a divine happiness because it is a happiness that knows God's acceptance and is in confident and we're confident in God's approval. That's, that's what this happiness is. And there is a reason this sermon begins with, with beatitudes rather than imperatives. It doesn't begin with imperatives. It begins with these beatitudes, these, these, these character qualities of those who, who belong in the kingdom of God and who are blessed because they belong in the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus, wisely, as he, as he gives these beatitudes, he's, he's bringing in the reality of their need for a Savior. And it's not, it's not a, this clear gospel, you must be born again, but it is. We cannot do what these, we cannot be what the Beatitudes say we are to be apart from Christ's saving grace. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so what, what Jesus is simply saying is divinely happy are those whose eyes have been opened to their need for God's saving grace. That's what he's saying. Divinely happy are those who, by the Spirit's revelation, see their need for God when by the light of the gospel they see how deep and pervasive and evil and wicked their sin is against the holy God who created them. And that is what we are to see. Listen, the good news is good because we are so bad. The good news is good because it's rescued us from what was so bad. And until we capture an, an understanding of how wicked and evil we are before a holy God from birth, the good news is not good. But it is good. It is good because we're not trapped in our sin anymore. When we come to, to Christ and experience his saving grace. And then Jesus goes on to say, not only blessed, but blessed are the poor in spirit. This beatitude sets the foundation for the other seven beatitudes that follow because it's a window into the transforming effect of the gospel in our lives. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The kingdom belongs to those who are poor in spirit. And there, it's not talking about those who, who have just this lowly self-esteem and my spirit is not very good. No, it's those, it's, it's those who are, are poor in spirit who are aware that they are sinners in need of a Savior. The poor in spirit are those who come to God empty-handed, bringing nothing to God but their sin and their need for His saving grace, for His forgiving grace, for His transforming grace, just like the tax gatherer in Luke 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give, all, give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, brothers and sisters. To be the tax collector, not the Pharisee. To be the tax collector. Poor in spirit is to see ourselves as beggars, hiding our face from God because we are aware of the depth and ugliness of our sin. Now listen, there is nothing attractive about a beggar. There's nothing that would draw us to a beggar. As I have traveled through India and through Burma, these emerging and third world countries, and I have seen thousands begging on the street, begging on, in wheelchairs, children begging. As you see a beggar, it's not attractive. And we're, we're not attractive, but Christ's righteousness clothes us and makes us attractive to the Lord. 
poor in spirit is to see ourselves as beggars who hide their face from God because they're aware of the depth and ugliness of sin. Now, aware of having an awareness of our sin and aware that our, our sin is, is really bad, that's not our natural disposition. Our, our minds and our hearts typically lean towards minimizing our sin and softening our sin and sanitizing our sin. We're often tempted to rationalize our simple thoughts and attitudes and actions with excuses. Well, I, I didn't really mean it that way. Or, you know what, you, when you said that, you made me angry. And we, we just, we, we excuse and we blame others. And, and what we are, we're blinded by not seeing how wicked and evil our, our sin is towards God first and towards others. The reality of our sin is that it's so evil, God put his son to death in order to pay the debt of our sin. Now, unlike us, Jesus was not poor in spirit because he lived a sinless life. And yet, he became poor for our sake that we might become rich in his grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He became poor by giving up his heavenly glory for us. Honestly, our earthly filth. He, he came and lived in our world and he took on our flesh and he faced, he faced the temptations that we face, but without sinning. And then he took upon himself our sins. Past and present and future. And he was punished on our behalf and he paid the debt for our sin and he received God's righteous wrath for our sin on the cross, that it might be dealt with once and for all. Blessed are the poor in spirit who recognize that truth of what Christ has done, that he became poor, that you might be rich in grace. And that he became poor, that you might became, become rich in grace because you are poor in spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. He rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit so that we might experience the riches of his grace through salvation. Brothers and sisters, to be poor in spirit is a gift. Oh, what joy we should know by being poor in spirit. It means we've recognized that we don't have to earn God's approval anymore for either our salvation or our sanctification. That God's, God's approval is because of what Christ has done for us because he became poor that we might become rich in grace. We've become and we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ so that we can please him as we live in his kingdom the way a disciple should. And then he, then he goes on to close this beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Listen, throughout the centuries, the people of Israel kept forgetting their uniqueness as the people of God. They would, they would mingle with the world. They would mingle with the nations. They learned to live the way the nations lived. And they became less and less like the people of God because they did so. In 417, Jesus announced the good news that the kingdom of heaven has come. And here he, he came to inaugurate it. But it, it, he didn't only come to establish the kingdom, but to bring others into his kingdom. And as we saw in, in 418 through 22, he never planned on doing that alone. He never planned on bringing others into the kingdom of God only by himself. It is through his disciples that the kingdom of God goes forward. It's through his disciples that the kingdom of God advances. But those disciples must represent what is true about the kingdom. Lives are transformed. Lives are different. God's grace has changed them. That's what we represent as disciples of Jesus Christ. People should look at us and see that we're different. People should look at us and understand that we, we know we're poor in spirit because we know we need a Savior. We are to look different. And how are we to look different? Well, this Sermon on the Mount is a call to be different. And it begins with the Beatitudes that describe the transformed character of those who are now citizens of the kingdom of God. Those who are in the kingdom are to shine like lights in the darkness of this world. Every paragraph in this sermon, every paragraph in, in Matthew 5-7, through 7, you will see it brings a contrast between what a believer does and what an unbeliever does. What a believer looks like and what an unbeliever looks like. But we never have to do it alone. We never have to try and, and do these beatitudes, be these beatitudes, and, and follow the, the ethics of this sermon alone. Listen, it, it's not about ethical behavior first. It's about theological understanding. What God has done for you in his love and compassion for the world, he sent his son, and you are sitting here today and you were experiencing the riches of his kingdom because he loves you. You will celebrate in just about another week once again rejoicing at the coming, the incarnation of Christ. If you weren't a believer... that celebration would pass and you'd just be looking at a bleak winter. Especially here in Maryland. Or is it Minnesota? Listen, the Beatitudes inform us of this. To be blessed in the fullest meaning of the term is to have this inward contentedness that's not affected by the circumstances around us. That it is, it's kind of a, divi it's a divine happiness that God desires for all his children. And that we're not affected by the, the trials and the tribulations and even the tragedies around us in the way those who do not know God are. No, no. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit because they know they have God's spirit. Do you get that? They have God's spirit. 
And they have something to look forward to far beyond this world. They have to look, they have look forward to an inheritance given to them by God that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, being kept in heaven for you, being guarded by God. That is what we have to look forward to. The kingdom, yes, it is ours right now. But it is not a kingdom that's yet complete. That is yet to come. But it will come. It will come. And until we experience the full blessing of his kingdom and inherit all that he's promised, brothers and sisters, we can live in the blessings bestowed upon us now by the Holy Spirit who has given us gifts that we might be able to follow after this sermon. These gifts are a wonderful reminder and assurance that God is with us and that we belong in his kingdom. And they are given to us that we might, like the first disciples, be fishers of men until he returns and live for his glory. Can we do that? Brothers and sisters, let us, let us be poor in spirit for it brings glory to him. Father, thank you that by your kind grace, we are poor in spirit, and yet we are rich in your grace. So Lord, as we, as we go from this place today, may this sermon and may these words of our Savior continue to, to literally ring in our ears that we might remember all of the, the wonderful saving grace that has been bestowed upon us by your Son. In Christ's name we pray.